Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are diving into dark forests and magic trees, specifically what dark things lurk in the Mark Twain National Forest that spans 1.5 million acres in southern Missouri. We will get back to all the scary things in the Mark Twain Forest in a minute. But first, we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or just about any other podcast platform. So what happens in the Mark Twain forest that scares you? Well, besides the people who disappear and are never heard from again, uh, there are the UFO encounters, Bigfoot, werewolves, and the Missouri Mystery Mound. Let's not forget that an entire colony disappeared there as well, and the Trail of Tears went through what is now the Mark Twain National Forest. There's been a lot of things happened there that was very dark, and some of those things are very hard to explain. And of course, it's up to everyone to decide what really happened. And then there's the issue of witchcraft and the magic of the forest itself. We will discuss what you thought was just a relaxing hike or camping trip in a second. But first, we want to invite everyone to follow, like, etc. Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Plus, we encourage you to follow the podcast. While you are on Facebook, you can subscribe to the private Dark Ozarks subscribers group. Why, you may ask. Yes, it does have a small subscription fee, but you receive content that is exclusive and beyond the scenes uh, uh, where you don't find it anywhere else. It also helps us bring more original content to Dark Ozarks. You can click the subscribe button on the page. You'll have to log in since there is a payment, and we do appreciate everyone. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage everyone to <clears throat> check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online. Uh, on Facebook and their website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com, for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more, not to mention the buildings haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and food in a historical building with a noir past. And also, yes, the building is haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. Dark matters in Mark Twain National Forest. I think, mm. <laughs> I think probably one thing that comes to mind and makes a lot of sense to people are there are a lot of tales of Bigfoot and wild men. Yes, yes, there are. And for good reason. When, <clears throat> when you look at the, the spaces that we are dealing with. 
Yes, um, and and I think I, I think for people who are not very familiar with March Twain National uh, Forest, it, it it would make sense for us to describe the area a little bit because it is a lot different than a lot of national parks. <clears throat> it is. So if you're if you're listening and you're not familiar with Mark Twain National Forest or Missouri or the south half of the state of Missouri, which point if you are, you have interacted with the Mark Twain National Forest, possibly not even knowing it, is <laughs> it is not like Yosemite or the Everglades or um, the, the, the Grand Tetons or uh, Yellowstone in the sense that <clears throat> south of the, uh, the I-70 corridor, which stretches between St. Louis and Kansas City, there are, and very much within the Ozarks of Missouri, you have nine massive disparate regions of the Mark Twain National Forest. And within this space, uh, obviously forest, that pretty much should go without saying, but just for clarification, but <clears throat> within woven throughout these sections, there are still, uh, you know, your regular uh, road infrastructure, uh, homes, farms, ranches, uh, these types of things. <clears throat> and so it is a, a very different situation than, you know, pulling up to the the, the, the gate, uh, uh, one of the entrances into, for example, Yellowstone, which I grew up doing. Same here. Grew up doing this time of year, don't ask. <laughs> and we weren't quite that brave. <laughs> we did during the summer. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is fair. That is very fair. Uh, the one, the one and only week that I experienced minus forty-five degrees Fahrenheit, not wind chill. <laughs> <sighs> oh, <clears throat> December nineteen ninety in Cook City, Montana. Sounds yeah. like a lively time. Honestly, it was absolutely amazing, but it was it was the kind of cold that you just hear about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was a, a, a freshly turned 12 going, oh my gracious. We <laughs> were in South Florida this time last year. What on <laughs> earth have we done? <sighs> but incredible memories, incredible scenery. On that note also, for folks who are watching live tonight, we do want to wish you all a wonderful, safe and festive winter solstice. Yes, it is the solstice today. And, and yeah. um, uh, it seems very appropriate considering some, some of the things that have been going on today, so. I agree. And, <laughs> and, and, and the topics that we have tonight. And so yep. going over this, uh, there, you're not, you, you'll find the signs alongside the road, typically large, nice signs that say you're entering Mark Twain National Forest, but you will not have the, the, the gatehouse and paying the fees to get in and the, the welcome packet and all, all of those things that we typically associate with national spaces. Well, one way to put it is that instead of going into an area 
that is surrounded by quote civilization, you have you you basically are are going in and out of areas. Um, yeah. And just because you're in the national forest doesn't mean that you don't have people living there day in and day out. It's not it's not just people who are there working or they're visiting as tourists. Right. <clears throat> right. Which <clears throat> really tends to change. It does a couple of things. One, it changes the dynamic of the reports of strange activity. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, and I think in, as we dig into this more, many cases, it's individuals who are actually interacting with the forest on a regular basis, ra rather than uh, simply being tourists. And, and, and in that regard, I think those kind of reports, for me anyway, um, can have a lot more credibility in that often you're you're dealing with people who are are there a lot who are familiar with you know what typically happens and the wildlife and you know what you typically see in the sky things like that whereas if you're you know at a national park and you're 1500 miles from home and you're there for a day or two it's easier to mistake things that you're not familiar with. It is, <clears throat> it is. And uh, <clears throat> the term town people tends to show up. Now I'll leave it at that. But <laughs> <clears throat> our, our massive uh, sections include uh, the Cedar Creek section, Salem Potosi, Fredericktown, Poplar Bluff, Donovan 11 Point, Rolla, um, or Houston Rolla, um, Willow Springs, Ava, and Castle. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of territory. It really is. I mean, you, you, you know, from whether you are going east to west, south to north, etc., you know, you are talking about hundreds of miles. You are, you are. And <clears throat> uh, a, a, a lot of different features, but one of the, the standouts with the Mark Twain National Forest is that it is typically very, very rugged mm -hmm. and very, as the name implies, yes, it's a forest, but it's very densely forested uh, with with a majority of, uh, of hardwoods and a a, a lesser uh, percentage of shortleaf pine. Yes. And, and weird stuff happens there. Yes, weird things happen and um, have, and have happened for a long time, I think is, is something too to, to note that uh, you hear about some of this stuff more, I think, in the internet age and some of it gets reported and regurgitated over and over sometimes the same story over and over and so it's sometimes if, if that's your source and that's where you're reading it 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 can appear like is this isolated or is this new you know is this stuff that's just started happening in the last 20 years no no it isn't and especially with the uh, uh logging that began in the 1880s Mm -hmm. uh, very important to understand that 
that uh, the forests of Missouri, with a few exceptions, were clear cut beginning in the 1880s to feed industry. Um, in in <clears throat> primarily the uh, railroad infrastructure. Right, actually, um, most of the railroad uh, ties for the railroads going from the Mississippi West actually came from the Ozarks. Yes, which is mm, both phenomenal and sad. Mm -hmm. At, at the same time, <clears throat> you know, and, and you know, just as a as a little bit uh, of an aside with <clears throat> the um, with the with the forests of the Ozarks, you know, the uh, the virgin forest, <clears throat> uh, virgin hardwood and shortleaf pine forest uh, of the Ozarks existed since the Cenozoic era mm -hmm. until 1880. Yeah, then it then it's the no and it, when we say it's a you know pre-rugged area and heavily forested it is, but it would have been even more so before that point, which I think does lend to um, the pattern of stories for for Sasquatch or Bigfoot uh, where so many people think of that as a Pacific Northwest Canadian uh, type thing. It really, we had forests that thick up until 140 years ago. Yes, I, I think that's very, I think that's a very powerful um, observation. <clears throat> and with that, just the the culture of the logging men and and i think it's very important you know there, there's there there are aspects of the clear cutting of the ozarks that i lament for a variety of reasons mm -hmm. um, and, and there are still small sections of old growth ozarks forest but it is rare right <clears throat> at the same time the predominantly men, uh, the loggers who went in to do this work or either either went in in camps or were the the everyday men still actually in the indigenous quote unquote hillbillies who were living in the in, in mm -hmm. the mountains who were suddenly presented with the opportunity to actually make money uh, yeah. that was consistent <clears throat> that their work, their culture, their stories, their unbelievably dangerous and backbreaking work that they labored to ultimately create infrastructure that we take for granted. We <clears throat> drive across the country on, on infrastructure roads that follow railroads. The railroads were the precursor to our, our, our regular vehicular roads. And we, we cross uh, bridges. We uh, we we are um, oblivious to the train trestles. We are oblivious to all of these things. These things were were things that incredibly hardworking individuals, simply trying to make a living, created. Exactly, and and these were some of the the first people who encountered wild men or or Bigfoot in the Ozark. Yeah. Um, 
and actually a, a couple of the earlier earliest accounts are connected to two of the areas in the Mark Twain National Forest. Um, first would be the Donovan 11 point area um, in that um, there were stories of wild men um, coming out of Missouri going south into Arkansas after the New Madrid uh, earthquake uh, in uh, what, 1811 to 1813, and people might find that a little odd, but there were, there were three or four major earthquakes within a few days, and then there were 20,000 more earthquakes over the next about 15, 16 months. And shortly thereafter, there were reports of quote, wild men um, uh, showing up further south and believed to have come out of that area. And parts of, of the Boot Hill and extreme eastern Missouri through there, literally the subsidence was so great that um, you had cracks developed that were, you know, 40, 50 feet deep and, you know, that far wide areas raised up 30 feet or sunk uh, parts of land that uh, suddenly are underwater, that kind of thing. And so you started getting stories of these creatures that either men gone ha having lost all rationality and basically become feral or some that really do sound like modern Bigfoot accounts. They do. It, it can go either way. And <clears throat> you have to be prepared for the possibility that we might actually be hearing descriptions of <clears throat> two separate phenomena. Yeah, actually, it could have been, you know, to be perfectly honest, could have been two different groups <laughs> decided to leave the area after that. Yes, and <clears throat> simply being shaken up to, to a large degree. <clears throat> it is difficult, I think, for us to, now we're, we're oblivious to the, 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 so much of the infrastructure that exists, but it's easy to also, or, or difficult, I think, for us to wrap our heads around just how majestic and massive the pre-1880s forest was yes yes and that uh, these things could have i mean people you know the, these kind of migrations happened and and uh, people really weren't that surprised by it from all accounts um another area of the national forest that is connected with bigfoot accounts very early is actually the Ava area, and that would be the Blue Man. Yes. And there are reports of the Blue Man through the Ava area around several counties in that area and, and actually going down into Arkansas as well. Um, but starting in the 1860s and actually um, reported by uh, some logging camps that they were uh, you know, small scale um, 
logging and sawmills basically to build the towns um, uh, right after the Civil War and to rebuild areas. And they reported in detail being attacked or chased by uh, creatures that sound just like Bigfoot, very tall, very heavy, muscular, covered in hair. Um, and there, there are two accounts of why they call him the blue man. One is that uh, it's very dark fur that in the uh, sunlight has a blue tint to it, uh, blue hue. And the other is that one of the first loggers who reported seeing them, his nickname was blue. So interesting. Who knows which it is, but ironically, typically, there, there were a number of reports describing them as having, you know, almost black fur that, that had a blue cast to it in the sunlight, so. Yes, and th there's an interesting report that <clears throat> much more recent that seems to validate that. Something mm -hmm. that, it, one of the things about the, the Blue Man report that I really, really like is that it precedes the mid 20th century uh, pop culture references of Bigfoot. That's true. It's it's before basically the hype or before Big Bigfoot became a household name. Yeah. <clears throat> and, that, and there's a lot of detail in those reports too, though, uh, about behavior that is reported today. Um, yes. Throw, throwing rocks, uh, hitting trees with a with a a stick or a limb. Um, you know, the, the bellowing, the, you know, basically intimidation, trying to run them off, um, off of territory. And so when you read the accounts, it, it sounds like something that you, you read today. It does. And, and with that, <clears throat> and I, and I, I want to, I want to make sure that I clarify, I'm not dismissing the, the Bigfoot lore that has the the anecdotal evidence and the the reports and the the Bigfoot lore that has expanded uh, since <clears throat> the the 1950s. That the thing that I really the the issue that one always has to deal with is and and we see it more now with the with the internet because copy and paste is a real thing and it's <laughs> trust me I know um, in terms of research. <clears throat> but you you have the situation where as when when individuals uh who are attempting to do as as um most the most grounded research as possible find one report and then you simply don't know how much of that report has or has not been contaminated by popular culture that's you, true you and <clears throat> that um that contamination is <clears throat> once something enters into public consciousness <clears throat> pardon me once something enters into public consciousness it's it's very you know is the report that you're being given is that something that someone genuinely saw or did they see something that could be mistaken for that 
and even unconsciously, not that they're trying to make something up, uh, mm -hmm. but that the Bigfoot reports, the popular culture expectation, the its its fur was this color, it moved this way, that the mind doesn't just fill in the blanks around it based right. on expectations we all have. Like we all know what Bigfoot is supposed to look like. We all know what Bigfoot is supposed to move like. We've all seen uh, clips of the video uh, from the from the Northwest, Great American Northwest, these types of mm -hmm. things. That's the thing that I love about this original Blue Man report, which interestingly enough does anecdotally mirror so many of the uh, modern accounts, which I think is fantastic. Um, you know, is a, is a base of potential evidence. <clears throat> but we also know that the loggers and the account, those who were writing these accounts in the 1860s and 70s, were not culturally contaminated by uh, a pop culture expectation. Exactly, exactly. And the, you know, sort of the extreme opposite end of that spectrum is Rob Lowe, you know, saying, you know, reporting that he and his son were filming their, their show in Arkansas a few years ago and encountered Bigfoot. Um, yes. And, but I never heard any particular details. So actually, you know, reading interviews he did, I never heard any particular details of behavior, exactly what happened that would say, okay, uh, it was very vague. I'm not saying yes. it didn't happen, but you'd have to wonder. Yes. Now, along those lines, just to dig into this, this particular aspect, <clears throat> there are quite a few uh, online articles and quite a few YouTube videos mm -hmm. dealing with Mark Twain National Forest and Bigfoot. And some of the, yeah. the reports are really, really interesting. Some of them are quite dramatic and mm -hmm as part of this pop culture contamination. I, I wanna be really clear when I say pop culture contamination, I'm not saying that the account is or is not true. It very well may have happened. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that it, I'm, you know, uh, specifically disputing that, <clears throat> that claim one way or the other, <clears throat> but you have these situations where, first of all, it simply says Mark Twain National Forest, and there is no further reference. I'm going, okay, which of the nine gigantic sections scattered across the south half of the state are we referencing? Because exactly. they're- They can be hundreds of miles apart. Yes, and, and in some cases, depending on uh, terrain, even with our modern infrastructure, close to a day's drive apart. Mm -hmm. um, That's true. And I know because I've done that. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Once, <laughs> <clears throat> one, one, let's just say once you, uh, once, once you get off the, off the beaten path between Poplar Bluff and Donovan, it's a long <laughs> way back to Hollister. <sighs> and I, 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 I used to make the drive between Springfield and Donovan at least every other month, sometimes every month. Yes, you know, yeah. you know, some of the most beautiful country that you're ever going to see if 
you can you know take your eyes off of the road because it's going like this exactly. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> and and <clears throat> okay so i'm originally my my ancestry is not flatlanders but i grew up in flatland uh -huh. and people who, uh, who are flatlanders uh, having discussions with okay how to get from this point to this point in an expedient way and they're like <laughs> oh just take that road and like no no <laughs> no do not just take that road not yeah. if you want to be there by the time that you need to be there <laughs> that's uh, right <laughs> it does not work like that but <clears throat> we we have the 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 scattering of dark things happening in the mark twain national forest uh stuff and then it's treating it like it's like like that's simple enough to find right and, and there's a lot there there's way more than that and so i'm always on the lookout for okay is this where 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 guys um and and the the reports that i really like are the ones that say okay this is near salem this is near bunker this is near willow springs this is near right. donovan these types of things and that really helps to of course narrow the space down there's one of i want to deal with this one to start with just because it is and again i'm not disputing the potentiality of the claim um but there's a, a pretty easily accessed uh story floating around out there uh, uh of an individual <clears throat> who was um was camping <clears throat> and you know first of all <clears throat> uh, an individual named bill camping in the mark twain national forest um and but this is this is a pretty classic example on the other side of a cornfield um 20 to 25 feet away from the tent, hearing large grunts coming from what sounded like a bull. Um, in the in the dark, apparently could only see a large, tall figure without detail, but believed in his mind it was absolutely a Sasquatch. Um, he believed the creature did not like humans nearby at night. Um, he fired five warning shots approximately 12 feet over the creature's head. That seems like a really bad idea. Uh, led to even more growls and threatening sounds. Again, I think that was a very bad idea. Uh, he believes that there are many of those creatures in the woods. He spent the rest of the night sitting in his tent with his fire and waiting for the sun to come up so he could pack up his tent and leave. It's pro probably probably lucky that he made it to sunrise. Agreed. After the after shooting, and. It is, it is an, an interesting, to me, particularly interesting on this because <clears throat> there, there's certainly plenty of individuals to provide logical structure for, um, you know, the, the, the region could not support a lot of Bigfoot. Right. Um, and yet there are a number of accounts that do seem to be disparate accounts that the individuals had a really strong impression that they were inadvertently dealing with a community of bigfoot 
not some sort of soul apparition. Yeah, at least a small group, because a lot of the accounts really do describe hearing um, coordinated noise making and footsteps and so forth, almost as if uh, one would be trying to draw attention in one direction while another would be sneaking, you know, blanking them, that kind of thing, so that at least small groups cooperating with each other. Yes. <clears throat> and... And if you are dealing with eight to 10 foot tall, essentially Wookiees, if you are dealing with Wookiees. Wookiees uh, might be actually technically at our next, next yeah. topic. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, you know, it really wouldn't take that many. We're, you know, the, the concept of dealing with an ex highly highly intelligent but of a completely different type of intelligent eight to nine foot tall or seven to nine foot tall uh bipedal primate men two or three uh, can do, do quite a bit too <laughs> it would not, yeah it would not take too many to give you a really really bad day exactly exactly <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, all you have to do is look at some of the, the, the guerrilla warfare from the Civil War and know how bad that could be. Um, yeah. You know, subtract firearms and add, you know, a lot more bulk and height. And, you know, I, I again, I, th I think that there's, certainly there are plenty of people to detract from the idea if, if Bigfoot was real, we would, we would have one by now, we would have found one deceased mm -hmm. somebody would have shot one somebody would get a better photo of one etc and while all of that potentially is quite logical i i still think that it is arrogant to dismiss the potential and to dismiss all of these reports for 160 plus years just out of hand i think so plus i mean if, if you if you uh read articles by or, or documentaries with anthropologists and biologists uh, in them discussing this, they often say they're not too surprised because just think of the number of animals that are in a forest um, otherwise and how few remains are actually found. Uh, yeah. And so if you have a very small, you know, if you have a relatively small population, um, that's not that incon inconceivable. Plus, if if they if they are a social animal, uh, presumably highly intelligent, higher primate, they could bury their dead as well. Yes, <clears throat> which explains a lot. Now that we've got two really, to me, really interesting accounts that go beyond just the surface level artifice that mm -hmm. we're dealing with one of them <clears throat> is actually uh july 1967 howell county missouri near willow springs and for me that's a huge step in the right direction me too and <clears throat> we have a really detailed account uh, from an at the time 12 year old girl 12 years old in 19 I believe in 1967 
uh, later as an adult sharing this. And it is to a degree uh, a little chilling just mm -hmm. in terms of actual encounter. Um, I have to step away for just a second, but if you'll share that, just the highlights of that, and then I'll, I'll be able to step back in. Okay, I've, I've, got, to, I've got to find my particular notes. Yeah, it's, um, to... and, and again, like I said, the fact that we're dealing with this, uh, with a date, a county near a city, these are, are really, really effective aspects. That's not saying that it can't, couldn't be fiction. Um, right. But at the same time, it, it just, it really strikes me as incredibly interesting. And, and again, in, in rural uh, Missouri in 1967, we're not dealing with a, a, an environment that has been extremely contaminated by pop culture references. And, and I think that's really helpful. It's, uh, it's in, um, in the- I found section. it. Okay, great. If okay. you don't mind sharing yeah, some- No, that's points. fine. Okay. Um, and, and basically this, this lady, she is uh, later on uh, recounting this and saying that she's, she's tried to you know, write it uh, multiple times and had a hard time describing exactly what happened and um, that she doesn't like to relive the event. It was very traumatic, but she can't forget it. So she's decided that she would share her experience. And I think that's one thing too, is that these experiences are often like people who have an unexplained uh, UFO experiences or perhaps uh, experiences with the paranormal. Sometimes they feel intimidated to share. Um, but as she, as she says, um, she was born and raised on a farm uh, about 10 miles from the nearest town. It had a wooded area that was connected to the Mark Twain National Forest. And um, there was a neighbor friend that she played with as a child who lived about a half mile down a gravel road where they would walk back and forth between the houses. Um, and this event happened when she was 12 years old. It was a summer evening and I had walked up to my friend's house playing. It would soon be dusk and time for me to go home. I'd been taught to watch out for snakes and I kept an eye out for wild animals. It was starting to turn dusk just as the old gravel road dropped off into a holler. Uh, it was a um, few shades darker in the holler as both sides of the road were lined with trees and foliage acting as a canopy. I guess I was not paying attention as I knew I should have been. I was watching out for snakes because um, they always seemed to be more in that area. My dad uh, had hunting dogs and um, one always followed us around. I could smell the dog. It smelled like it had been down in the pond again. I could hear it walking along uh, with me just a few feet off in the woods. I started calling the dog to come to me, but it did not respond. I thought that was odd. Uh, the road was coming up out of the holler and I started to pay more attention to what was um, happening. I could finally hear the dog coming towards me. It stepped out of the woods onto the gravel road to my right and just behind me. The hair on my neck started to crawl. Something was not right and I could feel it. 
I looked down and a little to my right, expecting to see the dog, but all I saw were two huge hairy feet. Suddenly I turned my head back towards the road and froze. Uh, my feet became rooted to the ground as a wave of fear washed over me. My mouth was as dry as a bone. I could not have uttered a, wor a word. Even though I was so frightened, I could not help myself. I had to look. I had to see what was standing next to me. I slowly turned to my right again, but this time I looked over my shoulder right into a hairy body. It was within arm's reach. As I lifted my eyes, they traveled up, up as it was very tall. I saw nipples under a reddish thick hair. It was, it was not fur. Finally, I was looking into a face. It was watching me very closely. The whites of the eyes were reddish and its pupils were a bluish color. I looked away and down at my feet. I did not know how I was going to get away from this creature. It was tall and stocky built. It could have killed me had it wanted to. I put one foot out slowly and walked as though I had rocks tied to my feet. The distance from where I saw the creature in home seemed like an eternity. And paper stuck together. At last I was at the door of home. My body was so tense it hurt to move. I was so afraid but knew I had to look to check where it was and it was still behind me. I could not allow this thing to enter uh, my home so I slowly turned my head to look behind me. I had only turned a little when I saw it standing down the drive a short ways. There was a cedar tree along the driveway and its hand was close to the top of the tree. It still watched me and then it just dropped to its um, um, hand and in about three strides disappeared into the forest. I then cried out, it must have been a strange or horrible scream because my dad came running. I could barely talk to tell him what had happened. He knew something had happened, so he got his rifle and searched around the house. You want to take it from there? <clears throat> Dusk was falling fast when he returned. I was so relieved to see him return safe. He started trying to calm me down and reassure me. He tried to convince me it could be a bear because everything can be explained. And maybe I should not repeat it to anyone else. <clears throat> I know he was only trying to protect me by his words. It took two years to finally have an answer, an idea of what it was that I encountered. Then a TV program came on called The Legend of Sasquatch. Then my dad said, sis, is that what you saw a few years ago? I said, close enough. I have spent a lot of sleepless nights since that, since that awful evening and have thought of what happened. And I wonder what would have happened if I would have reacted differently. And, and I really like that because there, there's, there's a lot of detail there. Um, and it just comes across as very genuine and realistic for how, how would someone react? Yes. And the, it's very much a, um, a close encounter. It is also a close encounter that is not framed by cultural contamination. Right. Um, and specifically that, you know, it was, you know, a couple of years later before it was like, oh, maybe this is it, you know. Um, yeah. This was not something that was on her radar or her dad's radar, you know. <clears throat> no. no. Um, now, I mean, there are some accounts of creatures in the Ozarks 
that you would categorize as Bigfoot, being more aggressive, chasing, etc. But this is this is interesting because it just show, it really shows a curiosity. It seems to me. It does. I I wonder if 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 that curiosity and that nonviolent approach had something to do with the fact that she was twelve. That I I do too. Um, she was not a threat, whereas, say, with the blue man, you know, a group of loggers could be perceived as as a threat to the territory or to members of their of their family, perhaps if they had children. Yes, <clears throat> and it's it's quite possible. This is one of the, just in terms of anecdotal documentation, one of the closest encounters is certainly one of the closest encounters that I've come across. Yeah, me too. Usually, you know, I've, I've, I've come across a handful where they're seen, you know, at some distance, but close enough that the, you, the person could get a, quite a bit of detail of what they looked like. But to actually be so close that you could have reached out and touched, touched him, um, I, I have no doubt she was terrified. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> and and things like the whites of the eyes being reddish, the pupils being a blue color, uh, the the reddish thick hair not being fur. Mm -hmm. uh, the these things are to me really, really fascinating. A, a commonality uh, on this is, and, and I, I, I found this particularly of particular note, something was not right and I could feel it. And that is something that comes up in a, in a lot of accounts is that even before or even in absence of something happening that you would say that that was aggressive behavior or that was threatening behavior, often there's a sense that something is off, there's danger, even though you can't specify why yet. Yes, <clears throat> something really triggering that portion of our brain that often seems to lie dormant. Well, and, and I think that, that goes back to, you know, more uh, primal instincts of when we were out there in the forest or in the caves or on the savanna and had to worry about whether we were going to be eaten. Um, yeah. And we still have those instincts. We just don't use them all the time. Yes, until something triggers them. And it seems that uh, the Bigfoot encounters are, is one of those things that consistently triggers that response. Very often, even, even, um, even ones where they describe them as being very human-like and I've, uh, read accounts a couple of accounts where hunters had rifles trained on them and then did not shoot because they felt like this was something very human-like but still describing that they were that they were very afraid uh in that moment at the same time yes, yes. <clears throat> and having having traveled a lot around the these areas, places like Round Spring, Greer Spring, Eleven Point, 
uh, current rivers, these locations. If you, if you, it's one of the same. If you know, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of how rugged and how dense this forest is. Um, but if you're, if you are unfamiliar with this territory, it is difficult to describe just just what it's like it is it is almost a different world it is and you know the flip the flip of the coin on this though is that there are there are accounts of sasquatch and bigfoot in areas of the national forest that are not quite as dense and remote as well um yes. when the, the Cassville area um <laughs> there there's a number of reports that I have heard personally over the years, uh, ranging from Berry County, the Cassville area, west into Newton County, into Jasper County. Um, yes. That, um, and some of these areas are not remote um, and more much more populated than, say, uh, where uh, this lady's experience happened or, or say Donovan or Salem, et cetera. Um, yes. <clears throat> so, um, and, and one in particular uh, that I investigated that uh, there was an indication that there was something very big there um, with footprints that were very large and and really were not human uh, shaped um, that were freshly made. So yeah. um, whatever whatever is going on, it is wide ranging and uh, not necessarily afraid to be around populated areas. I think is one thing to note. <clears throat> Correct. Which sounds contradictory but that is only from our perspective not from theirs that's true i mean they still you know even in the more populated areas are fairly adept at uh, moving at night or you know through uh, areas that aren't highly trafficked by people you know um, which i think more than anything shows the level of intelligence uh, i agree i really do there was a <clears throat> interesting report that came from uh the salem area salem missouri area uh -huh. fairly, fairly recently um specifically from uh from david prater <clears throat> and saying that he affirms that in the sunlight um the the bigfoot has a, a bluish hue that appears as a halo around its short, dark, curly hair. And that's not terribly far removed from Blue Man. No, it's not. I mean, uh, I was even thinking, you know, in the, the, the story from this woman from 67, you know, with talking about um, the pupils of the eyes uh, being bluish, you know, if some, if there, there's some pigmentation going on that seems to carry through in these different accounts it does and it and it seems to be a very <clears throat> memorable pigmentation 
Yes. Um, and then you have the ones that, you know, you, you get reddish tint as well. But um, so, and I think that's one thing too, is that they're not all identical. Uh, yes. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and you had a report of one that, that was light colored, if I remember right. Yes, uh, at least the potentiality of it or, or of a cryptid that was cream colored. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, to, to, to an initial observer researcher, the seeming contradictions could be a red flag. I think for you and I at this point, the fact that everything isn't being reported the same suggests actual experiences rather than pop culture contamination. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's just walk down, walk down the street any day and, you know, with, with, with humans, we, we, we have a lot of variation and, you know, with hair, skin, etc. that uh, if Again, not everyone looks exactly alike. No, and uh, the 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 quote uh, from from Mr. Reary in uh, near near Salem that I thought was really interesting. The Missouri Ozarks is a mysterious place. A lot of odd stuff happens here. It just might be that the world we see is not the world as it really is. I found that to be a very profound quote. Well, and that applies to a lot of a lot of things that uh, that come up. Um, that might be a good point to jump off to um, the next topic. Werewolves. Werewolves. <laughs> Hellhounds. <laughs> Not something you expect on your afternoon hike on a Saturday. <laughs> no, no, it is not. And <clears throat> there, we're we're gonna dive directly into territory that may touch upon three three different categories uh werewolves hellhounds and skinwalkers in association direct association with mark Twain national forest and interestingly enough if you do a, a web search you will find the these reports coming out now of hellhounds being seen mm-hmm. now just in terms of the phenomena, I, I want to ask you this, your thoughts on the definition of a hellhound. It, it has a lot of cultural baggage associated with it. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, technically, I guess, for it to be a hellhound, I, I, I would like to see something that would denote, you know, uh, something definitely otherworldly beyond, you know, phantom hounds which is something different um as far as i know no one's been dragged to the nether regions um or to another dimension etc um i think for most people they 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 just associate big scary looking dog as hellhound yes uh, and i i mean i don't know of any accounts that show any behavior or something that happened that would make me think you have that sort of supernatural aspect to it at least that kind (laughs) right 
<laughs> after after repeated queries, um, Hell has still maintained its position of no comment. <laughs> that that's correct. <laughs> The spot the spokesman is 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 uh, giving no, nothing else forthcoming. Yes, <clears throat> but it it's there 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 are some interesting commonalities and and a little bit of crossover with with Bigfoot in, in this sense, and that is that when an individual and I'll, I'll call them hellhounds for the moment, just for lack of anything else to call them, we call them a variety of things, but I'll call them hellhounds tonight. Um, upon encountering a hellhound, a commonality that appears to be in the case is that it's the idea of it's a very unsettling experience because something about all of it just does not seem right. That's true. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, these accounts of werewolves, which often the, the two are being used interchangeably, it seems. Yeah um which is odd to me because you know werewolf is not a hellhound vice versa but um you know you that would fit with both instances and we we had a an account come to us through dark ozarks a few months ago uh yes. out of the the rolla area generally from a lady who um had an experience. She was driving to work, um, driving along a, a two-lane highway uh, with forced around her. And she comes, as she's driving, she sees this very large, what looks like a dog or possibly a bear. She's coming up upon it. Uh, but as she gets closer, it looks canine. Um, and then it starts running and basically chasing along with her car, but maintaining the speed. So it's, it's running at an unnatural speed because she's going speed on the, on the highway, this two-lane highway. She's doing 55, 60 miles an hour. And it keeps up with her for at least a couple of miles. And she says that she's looking over at it. it it turns its head and looks at her like it's noticing her, that it's specifically noticing her, which is the unusual part, like it was really aware of her. Um, and this goes on long enough that she's un, very unsettled because it's maintaining speed with the car. And then after a couple of miles, it, it stops and just stands by the road as she drives on. Yes. Um, and it left her unsettled, which, I mean, any creature that was running that fast for that long would, would certainly raise your interest. But uh, it did leave her unsettled, and it felt like it was really aware of her, not just yes. the car. Yes. And <clears throat> this is, and first of all, there, there's a really interesting crossover between that report and our uh, Great American Southwest Skinwalker reports. Yes, that I mean the, that is true. The 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 and and the two points the two points <clears throat> of commonality. First of all, the extreme speed 
Mm-hmm. And as we're we're increasingly getting reports <clears throat> as as Dark Ozarks has expanded and mm-hmm. the the many of the reports that we get <clears throat> are solid reports. It's not just internet chatter. Right. These, these are these are individuals. And uh at times an almost commonplace referencing of things like yes it it was chasing the car and until i went past 60 miles an hour it kept up right which is enough to certainly you know give you pause very much so uh the the second is the the statement which i think until you experience it you wouldn't really fully appreciate it is the simple statement of it looked at me and it was different yeah and that that was the sense that she had and and you know and she said you know basically that she kind of hoped that she didn't run across it again And, and of course, from a, from a research standpoint, you, you, you think, okay, what sort of incredibly interesting data could be collected if you slowed the car down and stopped? But the, the other aspect of this potential reality is that everything about your being and your, your welfare is to say, under no circumstances do you stop because suddenly in a very weird and unanticipated sort of way you feel that you are in danger exactly um and of course you know if if you have something that's that has that kind of ability that is not expected what else could it do you know um and are you are you safe in your car you know and you might not be (laughs) that is i mean that's not a that's not a a great thing to say but it is something just to take into consideration oftentimes and not just with paranormal but just in everyday life difficult as it is there are times we're not nearly as safe as we think we are very true very very true and so what what do you make of of the sort of the morphing of these stories into werewolf stories oh that's there's a lot of moving parts Uh, certainly from a from a north american standpoint our collected lore uh on skinwalkers which since the advent of something called skinwalker ranch has become part of pop culture as well so there is pop culture contamination there Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> throughout um, throughout the Americas, there is uh, interesting and correlative lore regarding shapeshifters. Mm-hmm. That is, and and it, it, I'll be the first to admit, up until recently, I put all of this into. Uh, fairy tale archetypal mythology yeah i it was not something that that. yes it's certainly not something that i took literally not something that i not saying i didn't take the uh the archetypal 
potency of the lore seriously, but I did not take the literal uh, lore seriously. And if you dig into uh, more staid explanations, you essentially have uh, shamans dressing up in animal pelts, getting high off of peyote and getting done with their dream quest and saying, wow, I turned into a coyote. And we've all <laughs> agreed that I turned into a coyote. And that's where most of the discussion typically stops up until you begin getting these reports that are so consistent mm -hmm. uh, over time that are, are not individuals who are trying to get on TV. They're not trying to uh, claim anything crazy. They're not trying to seek the spotlight. They're, they're not doing any of these things. And some of these, these individuals, of course, are just everyday people. Some of them are <clears throat> uniquely credible sources uh, in, involved with law enforcement, um, paramedic work, etc., and not people who were out trying to find crazy this just occurred and the, the the crossover on that with so much of this lore is really fascinating. Again, uh, abnormally sized canines uh, acting in strange ways, mm -hmm. uh, running abnormally fast, uh, appearing sometimes walking on hind legs, making eye contact, looking at the person and having the person feel that they were looking at a human uh these types of things that that lot that is aligned with native american lore across the americas of black magic shape-shifting it is very odd it it it, it is and 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 i have to say i pretty much was in the same spot you were um for a very long time but as we got more of these stories i you know certainly gave it more literal credibility and not folkloric um and then i had my own experience earlier yes. this year which yes. again i was not I, I wasn't out looking for anything at that point um even though sometimes we we do tend to go out looking for things but <laughs> true <laughs> but when this happened you were not looking for no it. i literally kind of like this one i was driving down the road and and just saw this um, creature that at first I thought, oh, that's a dog. Oh, that's a really big dog. And then it just, but it was not proportioned correctly, even for a wolf. It was bigger than a wolf, which is really big. Uh, people who see coyotes, you know, often think a wolf is about that size, but a wolf is, can be uh, considerably bigger than a coyote. Um, but th this thing was, when it jumped onto the road, it had to be five to six feet long plus tail with a massive head and just the muscular structure uh, was more massive. Yes. Uh, unusually long tail too. And definitely it stopped and turned and looked at me and I 
and I feel silly saying it, but you know, I had the feeling it knew it was looking at me. <laughs> you <Yes>. know, um, <clears throat> and 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 I I, I just want <clears throat> get a little bit of clarification. The sense, and this is my understanding, but just so mm-hmm. we know, the sense it was looking at you, not at your vehicle. Yes, yes. I mean, and and that seems odd to me because, you know it would seem to me that it was just seeing, you know, observing the car um, and I had slowed and uh, to turn and ultimately stopped in the road when I, when this jumped onto the roadbed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it, I got the sense it was looking at me and we maintained eye contact for several seconds and then it jumped off the other side of the road uh, and it had to jump a total of probably 20 to 25 feet flat-footed um, both times and the first time jumping from a low water um, onto a low water bridge with a height of probably from where it had come up about six feet and, and clearing at least 20 feet and yes. landing on its feet just like it had taken a, I mean, it just very easily, it, the whole movement just seemed unusual. Yes. And so I still don't know exactly what I saw. <laughs> right. <clears throat> and there, there's experiences, encounters like this typically leave you with more questions than answers. Yes. And <clears throat> they you know range from and and of course the uh you know our traditional navajo lore from what we are able to talk about Mm -hmm. because one of one of the standards of safekeeping to protect yourself from skinwalkers is to not talking about skinwalkers Mm -hmm. which makes a lot of this both interesting a little eerie and a little difficult because what are we doing we're talking about skinwalkers but it, uh, you know, what we're theorizing is that we're dealing with um, black magic shamans who physically transform. Right, and I, and for those that aren't familiar, I mean that, and that part of the story is what pop culture is fixated on. Originally, they they were uh, warriors. Um, um, and uh, I forget the Navajo word, but it basically for fast running. And so they would use this magic to travel fast to get to a battle, to get back or to deliver messages. And then the idea is that over time, they started using these abilities and this power, uh, not for the not for the community and for the good of the whole, but for selfish reasons, and that's what developed into the skinwalkers that we hear about now. Yes, and <clears throat> some you know elements of that, uh, the, this facet of potential history that we're we're looking at, really, to me, are very profound because it is also a statement of the the fracturing of society the negative impact that the federal government had on uh, uh, on native culture 
by the creation of the reservations, et cetera. And that as, as communities were broken apart, the, the safeguards, the, the, the innate uh, safety structures that had been in place for thousands of years were, were lost and yet the, the, the potential capacity to engage in this kind of power remained. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, you know, I think it's important to note that, you know, it, it's not something that was just limited to the Southwest. Um, it's where it was most prevalent. Uh, and, but uh, you have these accounts over a wide area. And, and that wide area certainly is well into and not throughout rural Oklahoma. Yes. Uh, but now we're increasingly privy to access to solid anecdotal accounts happening throughout the, the Ozarks. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, uh, simply by proximity in association with the Mark Twain National Forest. The, the other thing that I, I find really interesting, and of course this is tying to werewolf lore, and, and one of the things that is both helpful and problematic is that we use language to describe things. Many of the times that, you know, that many, many times that individuals say like our account from July, 1967 near Willow Springs, this 12 year old girl did not have words to contextualize her experience. Right. Uh, until later she encountered, she, she was watching a TV show and it says, it's a Sasquatch. She goes, that's close enough. Apparently I saw a Sasquatch. <clears throat> our mm, cross-cultural language usage, pop culture contamination, and sharing of information is a, a double-edged sword. It is, um, because I, I think, like in the case of Skinwalkers, it, people get the connotation that this is something that's limited geographically, which it is not necessarily, um, or at least if not literally the same, a similar process of transformation. Yes. And <clears throat> I, you know, something that I think is positive is that the mm, march to homogenized modernity and, and industrial civilization in some of these regions, including some of the regions here in the Ozarks, are, is, is, is less advanced, meaning less lore has actually been lost mm -hmm. uh, than what we have seen in uh, post-Renaissance industrialized Europe that said we have um, Germanic stories of anthropomorphic wolves 
particularly in terms of wolf battle cults. Yeah. And we have, uh, of course, the Norse stories of the berserkers, uh, mm -hmm. the bear warriors, and bears an animal, but also bear skinned going into battle without armor. And what I think is of particular note is that our overly rationalistic, overly scientific uh, patina or artifice that gets plastered over everything has the exact same explanation for the warrior wolf cults of Germany, the uh, bear spirit warriors of the Norse, and the uh, black shaman or black magic shaman, um, the skinwalkers of the American Southwest, which is, it's, uh, it's a fraternal cult or group uh, that have gotten together gotten really really high dressed themselves in animal skins and then did silly things mm -hmm. and it does make me really wonder if those original uh late middle ages early renaissance reports that particularly were were monastic documentations uh from northern europe we're not actually documenting either the recent memory, comparatively recent memory, or actual experience of uh, a full-on transmogrification. It's, I mean, you know, it, it's possible in, in my, my thought. Some people will laugh at that, but- uh, <clears throat> Which is fine. Which is fine, but- um, lots of strange things have happened and um a lot of these situations you can't you cannot discount the witnesses by saying oh they were drunk they were high they were this they were that um they witnessed they witnessed these things and the mechanism for how it happened we may not know exactly or at least the people who do know how aren't saying right <clears throat> it is definitely hidden knowledge and and, and to a large degree that's okay uh it's turning myself into a giant canine is not high in my to-do lists <laughs> uh, although being run, able to run 55 miles an hour would be really nice that <clears throat> As said, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Trail of Tears in the Irish Wilderness. Okay. And I think, that, I think that's one thing that a lot of people are not really, uh, they don't uh, think about too much with this part of the state and the forest is that the Trail of Tears actually went through a lot of these areas because there wasn't just one route. But in particular, over over by Donovan and Salem, there were areas that uh, the Trail of Tears went through a lot and Dent County, uh, as well as the Cassville area. Um, yes, there's a good such 
good long section of Trail of Tears of the official route. Um, and that's another thing people may not be aware of. The, you had different types of migrations. You had some that were carried out by the military, by the army. You had Indian agents that relocated Native Americans as well. Um, yes. And so they went various ways. So when you say something happened on the Trail of Tears, it's kind of like, it is kind of like the four, not the March 24th itself is that it's spread out and just saying it was on the Trail of Tears in Missouri or Southern Missouri, not only is it, where was it east to west? It's how far north, how far south. Um, and so pinning things down um, helps. And then as you get over to the western side of the Ozarks, you, you get um, accounts uh, of a paranormal nature, including the spook light along the Trail of Tears. Yes. And I think that is, <clears throat> uh, and I, I would hope that most of our our listeners are 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 familiar with the Trail of Tears, but it is is a significant and unfortunate part of American history in the yes. 1830s with the forced removal of 20,000 plus Cherokee from uh, traditional Cherokee lands in uh, um, in. in uh, East Tennessee, uh, West North Carolina, North Georgia, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> forcing them uh, to then at that time Indian Territory, modern day Oklahoma, where they would be put into direct proximity with additional tribes that were unfavorably disposed to the Cherokee as well. Oftentimes it, it, at points, uh, of great vulnerability, and many, many Cherokee died in transit. Uh, the U.S. government paid a lot of money to individuals and individual companies, essentially, to transit them, mm -hmm. and it, it, you know, a very uh, deeply inhumane and really awful situation in in which uh, there it was mass human trafficking mm -hmm. in in uh, a very early time in American history where, you know, the, the, the situation was, how do we move the, the largest, we, this is the amount that we get paid. How do we move the largest amount of people for the least amount of cost? Right. Uh, <clears throat> overcrowding onto river boats, having uh, riverboat accidents as a result with many drownings. Um, you know, forced marching through awful weather uh, in vulnerable populations, um, elderly children, et cetera, passing on the mm -hmm. on the trails. <clears throat> and it, mm, it 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 came with its own cost, uh, of course, and <clears throat> created a very complex situation because many of the Cherokee who were forced to relocate to Oklahoma in the 1830s would remember 
just how much they hated the federal government in the 1860s, causing them often to fragment and many portions of that fragmentation to side with the Confederacy, leading mm-hmm. to uh, very unique situations in places like uh, the First Battle of Newtonia, where Union and Confederate uh, Native Americans uh, met in pitched battle, sometimes to the horror of the onlookers, because they were theoretically fighting for North and South, but in reality, they were settling scores that had dated back to previous Indian wars. Yes, yes. And um, that wasn't always apparent to everyone involved, uh, but it certainly happened. Um, Yes. And... Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I, I was just going to say it. It really speaks. One of the things that it, when we cover um, the first battle of Newtonia, mm-hmm. uh, Newtonia, Missouri, the complexities of the Native American conflict during that battle consistently surprise individuals who are not heavily familiarized with the with the nuances of this history. And I think that is really unfortunate because it it overlooks the fact that our Native American history, the Native American history that we're dealing with is not monolithic. It's not, it is not cowboys versus Indians. We are dealing with incredibly complex and complicated uh, human social structures that dated back for thousands of years along with appropriate um, animosities and history of war amongst the tribes for a variety of reasons before the the incursion of white settlement. And, you know, at the same time where the, the federal government was the impetus for, for the removal of the Trail of Tears, um, and certainly looking back was a bad actor uh, ironically uh in the years up coming up to that point the federal <clears throat> government had actually gone out of its way to help protect the cherokee from yeah. some of these other tribes uh, particularly the osage who um, were quite aggressive uh, towards the uh cherokee um and as groups of Cherokee were moving west into um, the Arkansas Ozarks, um, the government would move the Osage further west uh, and eventually on into Oklahoma because the Osage were so violent towards the Cherokee. It was a means, uh, it was uh, done to help protect the Cherokee. So, all of these things uh, are very complicated and there are lots of nuances that uh, a lot of times don't get talked about. And it, it's, it's unfortunate. And I think it's one of, the, one of the really important reasons that regional histories are so crucial because when you're dealing with things on a, on a, on a national scale, it's just incredibly difficult to dig into the complexities of human nature with, with these aspects when you start bringing it down on regional level, state level, and then uh, sub-state level, it, it begins to come alive. I was just curious with the Trail of Tears, in, in addition to the Spooklight, 
Uh, what, uh, what, if any, of paranormal activity have, have you heard of or, or you know, worked with? Um, there, there are a couple of places in, in, in Barry County that there's supposed to be uh, uh, potential hauntings uh, along the trail um, that may or may not be from people who passed during the march. Um, but I, I've, I've heard them second, you know, sort of secondhand accounts, um, and not in detail enough for me to say, yes, I think it specifically was tied to the Trail of Tears and not maybe some other event or, um, other natives living in the area another time, uh, but potentially related to that, um, because, uh, hauntings involving um, sounds of, of native ceremonies or singing as well as apparitions um, have been seen where the trail went through. Yes. <clears throat> but is it because of the trail or, or was that already there? I'm not sure. Right. And, and <clears throat> even just is something that we've noted with a number of uh, investigative hauntings, just the outlay, the outputting of extreme emotion mm -hmm. can seem to create some sort of residual that, that echoes. Exactly. Uh, time. Exactly. And so, it, I mean, it could be related to the trail and not even be a death. Uh, yes. Just the, the emotion involved, uh, or could be something different altogether. Right, but we do know documentably that a lot of deaths occurred along the trail. Yes, so so the, those the, those accounts are are ones that I think are potentially related to it. But yes, and I think you know to me that this particular element of our history is incredibly important. <clears throat> I, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can look at it in terms of paranormal investigation. And of course, folks are all over the place in terms of their opinions of, of paranormal investigation. But if you're listening to Dark Ozarks, I'm assuming you're interested, but that's just a hunch. But I, I think that there's, there of course are right ways and wrong ways to do many things. And to me, investigations along these lines the, the most important takeaway, regardless of what evidence or, or accounts are, are or are not gathered, if we can remember these people, yes. the lives that they lived, um, if we can remember essentially the pain that they went through and learn from that and honor their experience in the best way possible, that gives some of that pain from the past meaning. And I think, I think that, so. that that to me is incredibly important. The pain of our, our past mistakes, the pain of our past ancestors, um, as well as you know what what individuals are are currently going through. I think one of the things that uh, that human beings struggle with across the generations is a sense of what does it mean? Does it mean anything? Yeah. 
And to me, uh, this type of history, this type of research says, yes, your experiences and your suffering will not be in vain. I, I, I agree with that. And I think it's something that uh, if people do think about more, um, there tends to be a more understanding of other people. Yes, in, in all directions, in mm -hmm. all, all, all directions. And I think that is incredibly, incredibly important. Now, <clears throat> uh, an interesting mystery that has, has a lot of moving parts is the Irish wilderness. Yes. Um... And uh, the, the wilderness ended up being in, you know, on the edge of Dent County, close to Ripley County, I believe. Uh, and um, actually in area where the Trail of Tears went through part of it. So uh, basically you, you had relocation uh, on the Trail of Tears through this land in the 1830s. And then basically 20 years, or yeah, 20 years later, roughly, um, you have a colony of Irish settlers coming from St. Louis um, to basically start anew. And, um, there's some parallel there, I think, because um, while the Irish were not being forced to move, they had encountered a lot of uh, prejudice and discrimination in St. Louis. Uh, yes. There's been a large influx of Irish in the St. Louis area because of the, the famine, the potato famines. And they were not well received. Um, I think it, mainly because it was such a large number of people coming in at once, and it there it fanned those flames of you know distrust of immigrants, etc. That unfortunately our country goes through from time to time. Yes. Um, and so a group of about 40 families ended up relocating to start a new settlement, uh, basically through the guidance of the Catholic Church and Father uh, John Hogan. Um, and he was instrumental in securing the, the property and organizing it. And um, it's a bit like the Roanoke um, calling <laughs> in, in that, um, yeah, you know, where Governor White comes, brings this, the colonists, including his daughter and son-in-law. Um, and he has to go back to England, comes back to Roanoke and they're all gone. Literally, that's what happened with Father Hogan. Yes. <clears throat> and it, it's, in, in modern terms, it's really difficult for us to 
wrap our heads around because we have, you know, we have FaceTime. Uh, we have cell service. We have all of these things, except in the Irish wilderness, which you do not. So not Even much. today, that's right. <laughs> I, I, was, I was there in April and uh, went, wow, I uh, can no longer use my GPS right now. Let me just cross my fingers, hope for the best. That <clears throat> there you know, in a situation of, of, of the span of about four years, um, a, 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 a homestead settlement community can go from existent and thriving to simply gone. And, and by a lot of accounts with no trace. Yes. And, and to some degree, communication being so poor that many people in the region might not even have noticed or heard about it or and and to me this really speaks of the bravery and the danger of early settlement because mm -hmm. you're you are transitioning into a space with no backup there's no you, there's nobody that you're going to call for help Exactly. And timing was not in their favor. They, you know, the colony, they, they first started securing land and everything in 1858. I, you know, basically the, the, the colonists were there by 1859 and things going well. Uh, Father Hogan went back um, several times and things were thriving. Um, and actually um, the settlers were becoming fairly prosperous, which may have been part of their downfall in the end. Um, and then the war broke out. Yes. And, it, and at first, you know, it, it's interesting because at first, um, Hogan and other church leaders, they were being told, oh, they should be fine because they, they really didn't think that area was going to be of interest to the Confederates. Um, that's what they're being told in St. Louis. And basically they ended up dead center and crossfire between the Union and Confederates in the area. And not, not to mention, um, oh, oh, the Union commando that uh, tended to hunt Confederates. Um, I just went yeah. blank on uh, I just oh. blank his name. Um, can't believe I can't think of his name. Um, and that was the area he operated in as well. So uh, it's hard to know. Um, it is. It really is. You know, you you you. As as you noted, Hogan was under the impression that nobody really cared enough about this area to put the settlement at risk and exactly that really wasn't the case you had uh the the northern uh reaches of modern day irish wilderness which is in the mark twain forest uh being you know being union army uh the southern and southeastern portions being confederate army officially uh mm -hmm. we had 
just a couple of routes through this space and the 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 settlement was within immediate proximity of one of those routes Mm -hmm. and then you had bushwhackers operating which are essentially uh bandits uh Mm -hmm. operating within the wilderness and then you also had uh the the difficult terrain actually being a, a magnet of sorts of anybody trying to get away from someone going into <laughs> yeah getting getting into that that the that rough terrain in order to lose pursuit uh or simply not be followed so it is a a unique storm of conflict within what was a very very rugged and is a very rugged and remote region yes and um and it got so da- it it got so dangerous that basically, you know, Hogan was ordered not to go check on them anymore. Um, and so, there's various accounts of what may have happened. But basically, by the time things were, were safe enough to go check on them, there was no sign of anybody, and officially, no one was ever heard from again. Some yeah. people will rationalize, oh, they probably just moved, you know, when things got, you know, heated and, and dangerous that one, you know, a group at a time or family at a time probably just left. And some may have, but on the other hand, it seems odd that none of them, unless they all died before they got established somewhere else, never sent a letter to Hogan or or their backers in St. Louis to say, hey, here's what happened or here's where we are. Um, There are tales of um, the settlers having buried money around the settlement to safeguard against bushwhackers um, and the armies for that matter at times. Um, and that perhaps they were killed over the money or just in the matter of fighting. Yes. Um, on the other hand, if that, if that happened, they didn't find any graves and they didn't find any remains so that there was no evidence of people being killed on site either. Right. <clears throat> right. So it is, it is a lost colony at this point at this juncture point yeah it really is reminiscent of roanoke yes yes and having traversed portions of the irish wilderness it is a unique space yes um i've been through there a couple of times not really explored it but just driven Mm -hmm. general area I, to give people an idea of how remote it was and and how lost things could be, it was another 15 years after the war before they figured out where the church was so they could sell the property for bad taxes. Yes, yes. And so that gives an idea of how, you know, how cleanly swept the, the ground was of the settlement. <laughs> Yes, and that's that's the part that's hard to believe. 
it is it is and it's it's heartbreaking in the sense of these individuals and what they were attempting to do it, it really is um and you know it might have turned out much differently if it hadn't been for um, the war but um it, it is a mystery that probably will never get a a full answer right and i think just in terms of mysteries and this may be our last topic for tonight i really want to get your thoughts on this this has its own uh sort of subculture of conspiracy on the internet it is associated directly with the mark twain national forest and that is the missouri mystery mound yes um it, 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 it is one of those things that is very reminiscent of the, the metal library and is it Costa Rica and some other um, uh, supposedly lost treasures um, that basically um, this, this started out, became known from a fellow named Charles Teague. And there's a little bit of vagueness and through part of this, but basically that he found a mound uh, near Cape Girardeau that um, had various artifacts and carvings and everything that uh, appeared to be very old um in almost a um some of it seemed from the description almost a mayan influence yeah uh, which now they have they have more uh evidence that the mayan uh culture uh had spread to present day united states at least into georgia and Florida, so I guess it's it's possible. Um, but um, you know, basically, you know, there's there's steps to the account. I mean, it goes back, and that he can't find that the entrance is blocked, and and that he feels the government is is hiding this information and so forth. And that's where it really gets into the conspiracy theory aspect. Um, did they find something? It's entirely possible. There's certainly enough mounds in uh, in the region and uh, mound building uh, civilization uh, was throughout this area. So that's entirely possible. Yes, <clears throat> there's there are a lot of mm, there. <laughs> the the story as it has been told there are a lot of direct lines being drawn that do not that the, the even the evidence presented does not necessarily validate the lines that were drawn 
I, I agree. And, and one of those that I found interesting is that Teague made, made the conclusion that uh, General George Morgan, who was a, yes. a general in the revolution, um, basically had something to do with the mound or, or hid, had discovered it and, and perhaps concealed the location or misdirected. Um, and the ABC of his, his logic is a little tenuous, but basically George Morgan was um, sent by George Washington to map this part of, of, of North America. Yes. And he ultimately founded Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And Teague says that he saw a uh, engraving of what looked like a, some sort of grid system in the, cave, in the mound. And he saw it uh, in papers talking about George Morgan. And so he associated Morgan with it. Yes. And that somehow that 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 drawing would take you to the mound. Well, but the problem is when you look at the, the drawing that that Teague references, what it is is a is the original plat of Cape Girardeau that Morgan made. It's identical. So by that logic, the man would be somewhere within the original part of Cape Girardeau, which by Teed's own testimony, it wasn't. It is, there's just, there's a, a and I, I wanna, again, put my disclaimer on this the potential of all sorts of incredible things being buried and lost in the forests of of this region as well as many other regions but particularly this region is the propensity for that is not impossible it is we're no. we're, we're not out of the realm of possibility here no and something that i find really positive about this story is that it begins to highlight something that I think might almost exist within our genetic or ancestral memory on some sort of weird level, which is the Hopewell Mississippian culture was a vast and sophisticated civilization that stretched across this area of Missouri, in Oklahoma, uh, across Southern Illinois, into Kentucky, into the Ohio River Valley, and with mm -hmm. many, many sacred sites along the Ohio River in Southern Ohio. Uh, so essentially stretching from, can't believe I'm gonna reference this cryptid, uh, stretching from Mothman past the spook light. There you go. Uh, and <laughs> even to, you know, and, and, and uh, specifically the ceremonial site of Spiro Mound in yeah. Oklahoma. And so we have incredibly sophisticated 
of, of civilization and incredibly sophisticated civilization of which we know very little. And the mm -hmm. mounds uh, are evidence of that. Yes. And so I think any type of story that uh, highlights this is really, really fascinating. Uh, the alleged connections of this mm, proposed Hall of Records is tenuous at best. And the stories, as they are reported, uh, as, as you mentioned, you look at the logic that's associated and you say, there's this bit of information and then there's this bit of information. And we have this, this documentation that says, and then Teak said, it couldn't have been anything else. And yeah. I'm going, well, it could be a lot of other things else, actually. Yeah. And one, one of my favorites is that when uh, Morgan, uh, sort of after uh, mapping out and kicking off New Madrid, then leaves yeah. and uh, goes back home to his uh, estate. And, uh, <clears throat> and one of T's conclusions is he must have found treasure because how else could he have done this? And apparently records show that his rather wealthy uh, brother, who was a doctor, passed away and willed him enough money for an estate. Yes. So there's, I think there, there's some really, <laughs> really positive things here, but also some mm, cautionary tales about making rapid leaps of logic yeah. that that may or may not be sustainable. <clears throat> that said, is there, you know, I, I find the, the connections of a uh, um, connective or Mayan-like culture civilization in North America that predated uh, the uh, uh, contemporary tribes that, mm -hmm. uh, that we're familiar with or more familiar with, could those, uh, peoples have had transatlantic uh, transit or communication uh, that uh, is at times implied, but in the uh, in the mid twentieth century got uh, shunned in terms of potential. This is there there in in Missouri does seem to be uh, an interesting. Um, focal point we have a number of reports that are, are surprisingly credible of uh, just in terms of lost history or uh let's see what's the word i'm looking for history adjacent um <laughs> accepted history adjacent artifacts accepted <laughs> accepted history adjacent artifacts being sent to locations and disappearing with no forwarding address. Uh, yes. And somebody should have saved the receipt on that giant skeleton that got shipped off because it disappeared. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and, and I think innately many of us have some sort of resonance in the fact that there's more to the story. There is more uh, interesting things and from the potential of uh, lost Welsh uh, mm -hmm. explorers wandering into the heartland of, Amer of the Americas 
to um, even more recently, you know, the because the, there's the possibility that in 1541, Hernando uh, de Soto's men made it possibly to the current river in Missouri. And it's, I think, very important that we not immediately dismiss or immediately scoff at some of these possibilities simply because it doesn't fit a neat and tidy narrative. I, I agree. And, and, and that is the one thing with, with, with Teague's account is that it's like, if, if he stopped short of where he went, you know, it, it, he started hurting his own case because could he have stumbled upon such a man? Yes. When he went back and the, and he claimed, you know, basically went back and the entrance was caved in or filled in and, and uh, uh, he was intercepted by a couple of uh, official acting men who he assumed were with the government. And we start going down that conspiracy theory road that somehow the government, the government's covering this up and, and, and burying, basically burying the man so people can't find it. Um, where on the other hand, it could very logically have been, maybe there was a man, maybe the entrance just naturally caved in from time. Um, yeah. And leave it at that and he couldn't find it. Yes. I, there, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of awesome moving parts, including a humanoid reptilian god. Uh, yes, yes, I forgot that part, but yeah. <laughs> um, the Corps of Engineers uh, covering it all up. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the, the people in the woods protecting the place, thinking that it may have been a, maybe a pagan cult from long ago. Okay. <laughs> uh, the the hall of records has a giant skull carved into it uh it's associated with the planet saturn there's uh it it may be a possible location of the holy grail <laughs> you're out of luck oak island <laughs> um and it, it all started with Art Bell. Well, no, he went, yeah. Well, he went on Art Bell's show, yes, yes. So, yeah. And, yeah. and, and again, you know, it, there's, a, there's a grain in there that could be very realistic. Um, but at, at least at this point, the puffing has not helped the credibility no no <clears throat> the so the, the basic story of the mystery map really begins and ends of course with charles teague teague was researching for clues to a possible location of the holy grail in north america when he caught an interview with a native american shaman on art bell's radio show yeah uh the shaman claimed to have been exploring when he was approached by another native american and this stranger blindfolded the shaman and led him to a place in the deep woods, which contained a hall of records under a mountain. It apparently also encompassed many ancient artifacts, 
and upon recollection, the shaman claimed he did not know the exact location of these treasures, but was positive of an approximate location. But so far, I don't believe we've actually mentioned Missouri. And Antigua was so fascinated, according to this account, that he not only began to research it, but he got all of his... Uh, but Teague recorded the entire interview with the shaman and then reversed, did a reverse playback on the interview to find the hidden clues of the location. <laughs> Was he listening to the Beatles record at the time? Backwards? <laughs> yes. Well, I don't know that part. Uh, I, I, I'm not at liberty to officially confess. It, it is, of course, first of all, I think it's a, um, an, an extraordinary lesson in uh, how we, we arrive at a variety of conclusions. Yes, and different people arrive at them differently. Yes. Um, I, I think that, and this is something just, just talking about the importance of how to approach investigative research, uh, et cetera, is yes, we all have things that we would like to be true. Mm -hmm. We all have things that we are interested in. I think that from a, a union archetypal perspective, the things that resonate, resonate for real reasons. But we cannot always get, and oftentimes cannot get, a one-to-one -one ratio on what resonates for very important reasons to what is physically documentable in the field. Very and, true. And, 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 you know, in terms of research, in terms of doing valid research, you, you, I think it's very important, first of all, to understand that bias exists because we're simply human beings. We're, we, we cannot have an unbiased opinion about the rats in the maze because we also are the rats in the maze. But it, it is very powerful to realize that we are also the rats in the maze and then observe data that 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 it that self-insight is 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 crucial to the process um and uh, just if there were you know a few more facts there to to go along with that story it would go a long ways <laughs> and so you know it, there's enough circumstances that Okay, something could be plausible, but at this juncture, I'm reserving conclusion. Yes, yes. <laughs> there, there, there are many things that I am skeptical of. Now, this is where I, I think that it, it's a, an important divergence um, because I'm not discounting the cultural importance of the narrative. No, I'm not either. The and, and and this is something I, I I really have a lot of fun with myself, 
So like one of my conclusions on this is whether, first of all, the, the account as it stands <laughs> is difficult to believe. Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll put that out there and then just leave it right there. Let y'all go look up Missouri Mystery Mound and see what your your y'all's thoughts are on that. Yeah. That said, <clears throat> I I think that there are multiple um, narrative. If, first of all, multiple important narratives and important narrative truths that are undercurrents of yeah. the story. And one of them is the aforementioned cultural importance of the Hopo Mississippian people and that sophisticated civilization that I think we almost have a genetic memory of. It sounds perhaps sacrilegious to say for, for myself without Native American ancestry right. to say that I could have a genetic memory of that. But certainly there's something resonating there that you just like just outside uh, the peripheral vision where you go, I know there's more, I know there's more here and it meant something, let's, let's explore. And something that I found really interesting just digging into the, the, the General Morgan story and the, the, the plotting and settlement in New Madrid and the, the, this entire situation at a, at a really key moment in embryonic United States history when we were between the, uh, the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution and pretty much everyone was, was uh, you know, on tenterhooks waiting to see if the Constitution was actually going to work and we were going to be a country. Um, that you have Morgan who's out here freewheeling with the Spanish government, uh, <laughs> <laughs> establishing. And then also just the fact that something, again, speaking of infrastructure, something that we take for granted the that that uh the land platting the mapping the settlement the where do the streets go where do the roads go where do all of these things happen this didn't happen by happenstance it happened by uh an enormous amount of of, of effort uh sometimes great failure financial failure um and and sometimes incredible wealth and there were specific key players engineering this process, engineering the infrastructure settlement of a new state or a new territory and arguing immensely and probably, you know, working themselves up into a frenzy and occasionally having heart attacks and dying from the stress of going, how do we organize this stuff? And then yeah. a couple of generations later or a hundred years later, we're like, oh, just turn left on George Washington Street. Yeah. <laughs> exactly with and you know and then of course he's the one who started the ball rolling by sending morgan out here so yes <laughs> so we did indeed turn left on george washington street literally and figuratively <laughs> exactly and and see there's connection with george washington to the ozarks so yes absolutely <laughs> Now, I think we ought to, before we end, talk just a little bit about the forest itself. Yes. And the magic, and the magic of trees. Mm, one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> I had a feeling. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
of course, <laughs> speaking of, you know, not seeing for the forest for the trees, sometimes you don't see the trees for the forest. That is, uh, and, and something that is often lost because I don't think that we really have a, a, a mm, consensus in terms of a, a <clears throat> shared common language of consensus about this sort of magical folklore. We have yeah. varying elements. And so what we're left with in terms of the official authorized sources is the rather bland scientific aspects of mm, plant details and that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, might surprise people to know that I do have actually quite strong background in horticulture. So I'm reasonably well versed in this sort of thing, all the way down to a lot of the Latin plant names. And <clears throat> that at the- Which makes it witchcraft, by the way. <laughs> yes. Which makes it witchcraft, by the way, for most people. <laughs> and, and for the record, I'm good with that. I. Uh, but there, there's an enormous amount of magical lore, uh, both in North America and in Europe, and then with European settlement, that lore mixed. Yes. Uh, uh, sometimes surprisingly similarly and effectively in uh, association with, for example, uh, some of the rural Scots-Irish interacting with the Cherokee and com essentially comparing notes but in essence, we have just taking trees, not even going off on the plants, but just taking trees. We have trees as potent magical symbols. We have them as, uh, as medicinals. We have them as uh, you know, healing herb medicinals, but also as guides, as spirits, as living um ancestors in um, in a sense mm -hmm. that are are associated with sacred spaces both from uh from a north american shaman tradition as well as from a druidic tradition what what what, what tree in particular do you think in the missouri ozarks exemplifies that <laughs> it would be the oak. Okay. Uh, for for in terms of in terms of cross cultural uh, singularity, uh, and and in part because our oak species are so prolific in the mm -hmm. Ozarks, they always have been. Um, certainly since the Cenozoic era, which was you know said to be twenty nine point two million years ago. So uh, <laughs> apparently, oaks have been around for a long time. <clears throat> that uh, from an herbalistic standpoint, they have a, a great history. From a druidic standpoint, they have an extraordinarily great history. They have a hoodoo um, mm -hmm. tradition, and then they figure predominantly in many Native American tribe uh, stories, um, the, the Seneca, the Sioux, etc. And the the oaks across the board are, are are incredibly majestic 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and notable trees, the white oak in particular, even here in the thin soil of the Ozarks, can still become a massive and ancient tree. Yeah. And and um, what what quality do you think uh, magical quality do you think they uh, portray in the forest? Well, I, I to me certainly just from a, an intuitive standpoint. And oaks represent uh, strength, but more than that, they represent ancient wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they represent a knowing that, you know, I think is, is, is indicative of the fact that we're, we're dealing with a living thing mm-hmm. uh, that could easily be 200 years old, in some cases, much more. You know, and maybe that's that's part of some of these mysteries in the fort, in the Mark Twain forest, is that it is a knowing, a knowledge of things ancient, um, that despite our inroads, despite our intrusions into the forest, has not been revealed. Yes. And maybe for good cause. And, and quite possibly, you know, we have the the legends of the dryads. Um, we have the the legends of of things in the forest, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the the commonality of the forest. I mean, even by very definition of the forest, the the thing that makes the forest a forest, and consequently, by by direct implication, makes it magical, are the trees. That's true, and we still have new tales coming out of those trees in the forest um, which i which i find fascinating we aren't just talking about mysteries and tales that happened you know eons ago and have been handed down this is evolving uh, just example of the the hellhound and werewolf tales that are coming out um, it's ever-changing even it though is. the forest stays much the same, it's, you know, the, the things within it, the things that lurk within it that perhaps are beyond our uh, common experience are, seem to be evolving or changing. And they are, and, and I, think it's, I think it's our understanding that's rotating uh, uh, about the phenomena. I think the phenomena is, simply is and and our capacity to understand it shifts with each generation sometimes with the the complex inundation of data uh, but other times simply within our capacity to understand things i think so and that might be a a good point to end on we want to remind everyone not to forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. And on the next episode, we're going to be discussing dark tales from the queen city of the Ozarks, Springfield, Missouri. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Thank you to everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.